Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that you're really going to enjoy. So a lot of people here in the last few weeks, of course, saw what happened with the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank. A lot of people uh, connected this to uh, different things with crypto, the advance of programs like FedNow with central banking. A lot of people concerned about what this means for the financial system and where our government could be taking the future of currency. So I wanted to dig deeper into that with somebody who understands it. My guest today is the Black Horse. He joins uh, other guest Stephen Carson, Radical Liberation, on his YouTube channel very frequently to talk about economic topics. He's somebody who's very familiar with the industry. And so I'm happy to have him on to delve into this subject. Black Horse, thanks for joining me, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So we're going to get deep into, like I said, all the technical aspects, but we're also going to talk about what this means for different inter-elite factions in uh, kind of our government and kind of our financial world. What are kind of the behind the scenes interests that are attached to a lot of these events? But before we do that, guys, let's hear from today's sponsor. All right, guys. So there's a new movie coming out that I think you're going to really want to see. I was lucky enough to see a special sneak preview. It's called Nefarious. The best thing is that it's based on a book by the Blazes' very own Steve Dace. And Steve is really passionate about it. He was kind enough to have me come to an advanced screening. I'm sure you've seen the posters or maybe even the trailer, and it all looks great. It's kind of in between a horror movie and a psychological thriller. It's very much in the vein of C.S. Lewis. You know the book The Screwtape Letters, of course. Steve calls it Interview with the Demon. A psychiatrist is called to a prison and he has to meet with a convicted killer who's about to be executed. The killer claims that he's a demon named Nefarious. And of course, the psychologist, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe any of the supernatural stuff, but he's got to decide, you know, is this guy insane? Is he pretending to be insane? Can he be executed for his heinous crimes? Obviously, I'm not going to give anything away, but let's just say that the psychiatrist is in way over his head. It's a supernatural thriller that's perfect for your friends who love scary movies, but also has a really important message. It's the kind of movie that you'll be thinking about long after you get out of the theater. Nefarious opens nationwide the weekend of April 14th, so make sure to mark the date and get your tickets now at whoisnefarious.com. That's whoisnefarious.com. All right, guys, let's go ahead and just dive right into the subject. So the first thing I think a lot of people might not be aware of, we have a lot of bank bailouts, obviously, during uh, kind of the Occupy Wall Street moment, the crash of 2008. Uh, bailing out banks are a really big deal. There's a big protest movement. Uh, the left at that point had to pretend like they cared about that kind of thing. Now it feels like we get this major bank bailout and there isn't a lot of pushback. There isn't a lot of consideration. Obviously, the left, who's now cozied up to large finance at this point very comfortably, has no real uh, questions for what's going on. How common are bank bailouts? Is this something that only kind of enters the public consciousness when the media gets enough attention to it and it's actually happening all the time? Or was this pretty significant? This was quite significant. So what you're looking at here is the second and, and third largest bank failures in US history. So not as large as the 08 event. And a lot of the banks that were bailed out in 08 didn't reach failure status. So uh, you might have had 
a few more large bank bailouts on that list, if bank failures on that list, if, if 08 had been allowed to play out a little farther. But certainly this is a highly unusual event. So uh, I think most people have heard of SVB being the first bank bailed out, but how many banks were bailed out total and uh, what were their names? Well, so calling it a bailout exactly is kind of a... So SVB and uh, and Signature Bank were the two banks whose depositors were bailed out directly. Mm -hmm. But there's a much longer list of banks uh, that were under stress as a consequence of the uh, the broader dynamics in the system. And uh, Credit Suisse, a major European bank, was uh, kind of bailed out in an arranged merger with UBS uh, in the in the weeks following for reasons that are, you know, somewhat connected to the dynamics that sank SVB, but have an independent dimension to them. So in order to kind of understand how that works, I think it's worth looking at the business profile of these institutions and looking at the factors that created the stress that caused the bank failures. And then we can talk about how the bailout was affected. And then it's true that the depositors of SVB and Signature were kind of directly bailed out. But in point of fact, there were a lot of other banks that might have failed from the same factors had the Fed not done what they did. So in in a, a certain from a certain point of view, you're looking at a preemptive bailout rather than for the depositors of SVB and the depositors of Signature Bank, a post hoc bailout. Yeah, when when the uh, when the government shows that it's willing to step in and when uh, you know when when uh, action is taken, it kind of relieves the the pressure of other banks, right? The the the, the idea that the run of the bank or that the something might topple over kind of gets relieved by the fact that action was taken. Well, so the dynamics here are interesting. Okay. Uh, so deposit institutions, when they take your money, obviously can't, don't just take that money and put it in the Federal Reserve and sit on it as cash. They've got a liquidity formula prescribed by the regulators as to how they can allocate those funds. And that liquidity formula highly encourages them to buy government, U.S. government bonds. Uh, bonds of the local government in other jurisdictions. Um, when the Federal Reserve rose, raised interest rates, uh, they created very large unrealized losses on those bonds held against deposits, which created the conditions that made classical bankrupts, bank runs possible. So in a typical circumstance where there are not large unrealized losses on uh on instruments related to deposits, it's very hard to create a, a bank run. You have to have a very, very large percentage of deposits run off in order to make the institution insolvent. Because of these large in, uh, unrealized losses, many banks across the system were vulnerable to bank runs. It happened that SVB and Signature were early targets of this, and that has to do with the dynamics of their customer base. But many of the regional banks were vulnerable in this regard. What the Federal Reserve did by creating a, a liquidity facility to buy back government bonds held in the deposit business at par is they eliminated the condition uh, that made uh, bank classical bank runs relatively easy, at, at least to the limit of the size of their liquidity facility, whatever that limit actually is. 
Um, and so they, they took away the, the critical condition that made all of this possible. So like you said, the profiles of those banks made them kind of early targets. What about the way that they do business or their client base made them an easier target for this early on? Well, so there's really two key dynamics. First of all, SVB uh, is in the, they're in the, they've got kind of two businesses that dominate what they do, or I suppose did now. Um, They've got the private client business and they've got the um, the startup financing business. And both of these businesses involve very little capital markets activity and a large and the taking of very large deposits. So their deposit business was very large compared to their investment banking business or any of the other parts of, of their business that would ordinarily create requirements for capital outside of the deposit business. So that that's kind of one element of it. And then the other element is that a very large proportion of their depositors are all connected together in a tightly in a tight social network. So once uh, rumors began to circulate that they were vulnerable, it was ex- uh, FDIC estimates that something like 40% of all deposits were withdrawn from the bank in a in a three-day period, mm. which is a kind of, you can only have that if the people that are large depositors are tightly networked together and all talking to each other. Whereas if you, you know, if the comparable institution is something like Bank of America, you know, it's got a very large number of depositors that are not tightly socially networked, it would be very difficult to have a, a run of deposits go that quickly. Signature Bank is similar in that it's got uh, a collection of depositors that are very high high net worth, so they can kind of take their cash out relatively easily. They probably have other places to send it to. Um, the other places to send it to is a big deal. Uh, normally, when people have, you know, ninety seven percent of deposits at at SVB were over the two hundred fifty thousand dollar FDIC limit. Typically, when you go to the bank and withdraw, you know, two million dollars of deposit funds, you're not asking for hundred dollar bills at the front at the front w- wicket. So it's important that they had a place to send it to. Uh, so the the fact that these are high net worth individuals that likely have multiple banking relationships that all are talking to each other make a bank run make them extremely vulnerable to a bank run in in ways that i don't think the industry had kind of anticipated so those are some of the reasons why they were some of the the first institutions to to be targeted um for for bank runs so so that's an element there's also an element of poor risk management at both institutions and finally there's this element where both svb and signature bank were serving as depositories for um, what are called stable coins. So these are cryptocurrencies tied to the US dollar. There are stable coins tied to, to other underlying assets, but these the stable coins that we're using these institutions were tied to the US dollar. And these have very large, these involve deposits that are, you know, very, very unusually large cash deposits. Um, in the case of SVB, I think it was on the order of 30 billion in, in US dollars deposited against, sorry, 
five billion in U.S. dollars deposited against the the crypto business. Um, you know, it's very rare to have what was essentially structured as a retail cash account sitting in U.S. dollars um, with that at that order of size. Um, I can't think of a comparable example almost anywhere else in the industry. And that that created kind of a unique uh, profile for their deposit business that isn't kind of well, well approximated in the regulatory framework for how retail deposits should work. Um, from Just from a liquidity point of view, the, the people who wrote the liquidity regulations for retail deposits weren't considering that you might have 5 billion in a retail deposit. It's just, it's not... Um, it wasn't contemplated by the the architects of the regulatory framework. So ironically, because this was kind of a, a high end community bank, like the 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 uh, types of deposits weren't spread out over many different industries and many different people that didn't have communication with each other. The 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 more cl close knit uh, nature of the community that was depositing there and the fact that they're so high end made a, a bank run more possible than it would have been at something like Bank of America. Yeah, no. Typical retail clients have good reasons why they have their deposits there and they can't easily take them out of the bank and they can't coordinate to quickly do so. So they're re widely distributed retail deposit networks are just they're just much less vulnerable to classical bank runs than either of these two institutions. So there's a reason that the pressure that made bank runs possible first showed up at these two these two institutions yeah that makes sense and i want to get uh deeper into the crypto aspect here in a moment because i, I want people to kind of understand uh the differences in the different cryptos and why this one matters and how this is connected to, to possible other uh, uh currency issues but before we do that i just want to walk through a, in a little more detail the way that these were quote unquote bailed out because you, you touched on it some, but I think for many people, uh, the details of this might be a little more opaque. Uh, so obviously we have an FDIC that's $250,000, right? That's, that's normally what you're insured for yeah. a deposit. Um, obviously, like you said, the vast, vast, vast majority of these deposits are well over. Um, I understand you know, you know what you were saying with the bonds there and the fact that inflation had kind of created this situation. But how how did this was this bailout affected? Because you said the kind of bailout may not be the right way to use it. So uh, how how would this be properly described? Yeah. So let's contrast this to the kind of bailouts you saw in 08. So in, in 2008, there were many bailouts that involved essentially uh, the U.S. government issuing loans uh, directly to a financial institution or agreeing to, uh, well, there, there were two bailout structures, but the, the one that people typically think of as bailouts, direct loans, direct asset or direct purchases of equities in, in banking, of equity in banking institutions in order to give them enough capital to un, unwind their business or to or in the case of 08, to continue their business operations. So that's not what happened here. Uh, the US government, none of its agencies directly gave money to any of the these banking institutions. Uh, what went on with Credit Suisse is kind of a little bit different, but uh, you know it's a different pattern out there. 
Instead, what they did is they said, well, the regulatory framework around deposits compelled you to buy these U.S. government bonds. They depreciated in value. Now you have to sell them in order to fulfill your depositors' requests. And if you do so, you're going to create losses that make the institution non-viable. What we're going to do in order to avoid actually exercising the FDIC the FDIC provision, and in order to save all of your other depositors, we're going to create a facility at the Federal Reserve where we agree to buy back these government bonds far above their market value. So instead of uh, giving you cash directly, we're going to create a liquidity facility that's available to some, but not all institutions, where they can sell government bonds within certain restrictions at far above market value. We're going to take the government bonds that the, that these two institutions that we've seized control of have against these deposits. We're going to pass them through this facility. The Fed is going to pay is going to overpay for these bonds, and then the money is going to go out to the depositors. So if you were an equity holder or if you were a bond holder for either Signature Bank or uh, SVB, you didn't get any of your money back. You didn't participate in the distribution in the distribution of funds from the federal government. If you were an uninsured depositor from SVB or from Signature, you participated directly in the bailout. And if you were a regional bank that had not yet gone under, you benefited enormously by the, um, either by directly participating in the liquidity facility or by the impression that it gave your depositors that in the event of a bank failure, they would have access to the liquidity facility in order to get their deposits back. So it radically stayed the, the early bank runs that were on the go at many of the other regional banking institutions. So effectively, what they did, if I'm understanding this correctly, is removed most of the risk for the bond. Yeah, so they, they, they agreed to buy back as many of these government bonds that they compelled these deposit institutions to buy at far above market value in order to to eliminate their risk that they would they would lose money when the in the deposit business so it's important to realize that this liquidity facility is restricted to bonds related to the deposit business it's not universal um, but it's but that's what they did Interesting. So you're able to kind of shore this up and then other depositors that other banks that might consider making the same move, see that this option will be available and then they're less likely to go rush and try to remove their money, which kind of uh, even even though no runs on those banks have begun, kind of preemptively shores up any any uh, possibility that people will probably go take that action. Yeah, the intent was to restore confidence in the regional banking system. And to that end, the fact that every that all the depositors at SVB and Signature were able to get their cash, um, you know, certainly did certainly did good things for confidence in, in retail deposits. Now, what do you think is the motivation behind these particular banks? Is it just that there would have been this cascade? of bank runs on other possible banks? Is there a particular function that these banks serve that political actors or power actors 
would have wanted to see preserved in this situation? Is there any scenario where they could have let these banks go had they not been politically important to them? What do you think was kind of the motivating factor here? Yeah, so um, there's a, a bunch of questions underneath there. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- first, the let's talk about what was bailed out and what wasn't bailed out. So SVB and Signature Bank had an important client base of high net worth individuals who have you know, a lot of power and were able to make sure that uh, their deposits were bailed out. So that that's important to note on the way through here. The management and investors in Signature and SVB were not bailed out. They've all lost their jobs. They've all you know, lost whatever equity value that they had. Um, and it's important to note that Signature Bank and especially SVB were banks, but they were not part of the sort of, um, they were not part of the East Coast power network that kind of dominates US banking. So the best way to kind of think about banking uh, from a, an organizational dynamics point of view is as, as a series of overlapping networks. Um, there's a very tightly knit network uh, among the sort of top tier U.S. banks centered in New York. They all hire each other. You know, if you look at who becomes Fed governor, who runs all the regulatory agencies, you can trace them all to a, a fairly small set of institutions. They go in and they go from from industry to regulator back to industry, from industry to Fed, back to industry, from industry to treasury, back to industry. This happens all the time. If you look at the careers of any of these people, you can kind of, you could network diagram them if the information was public. Silicon Valley Bank was not connected to that East Coast network. They were connected to the West Coast network of sort of venture capitalists. So they... So it's it's interesting that the people who were not connected to the network which controls the the regulatory infrastructure and the Federal Reserve infrastructure, you know, magically find themselves all out of a job. So that that's kind of piece one. And then piece two is like, why did they do this? Well, if they didn't do this, uh, you would have seen, I mean, there were already several other regional banks that were in distress. Uh, the FDIC estimated that there's something like uh, 400 billion in unrealized losses in government bonds associated with the deposit business, which meant that there's a very large number of institutions that were vulnerable because of the speed at which interest rates were rising. So uh, if they didn't do this uh, or something like it, they probably would have had a systemic crisis on their hands. What's interesting is that they did it right after SVB and Signature went on, went down, not well when it was obvious that Signature that SVB was going to go down, and so saving Signature uh, or saving SVB. So they chose to do it after these two institutions were failed, not before. So if they had introduced the liquidity facility two days earlier, you know, all these people at SVB would still have jobs. Um, turns out not. Uh, and if they'd done it, you know, three days later, then there would have been several other banking institutions that would have been down and all the, those other people would, you know, have been severed from the network. 
So the politics of it are really in the timing, who was saved, who was not saved. Um, and it should be, in my opinion, it should be viewed as inner elite combat. Um, so if you look at the thread that I wrote for you, uh, the results of this are the depositors were bailed out, other banks were protected, Silicon Valley banks, kind of high net worth clients, are all headed to the Wall Street banks because they have nowhere else to go. Uh, and that's kind of element one to this. Element two to this is the involvement of the two institutions that failed with cryptocurrency. And maybe we want to get into that next. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll definitely dive into that. But just to clarify for people who are following that line, uh, obviously there's a there's a certain level of speculation that has to happen here because no one's going to openly declare any of this. But it's your contention that the way that this was bailed out and the way this was handled was intentionally to remove alternative or competing banking structures to force a lot of these high value clients over to the uh the banking network that is more in control of regulation and bailouts yeah it's it's just a crime of opportunity you saw a similar thing in 08 when uh earlier on in the summer of 08 when bear stearns went under there was no bailout money for bear stearns but a couple of months later when it looked like citigroup or bank of america was going to go down merrill lynch was going to go down there was all kinds of bailout money available for those institutions so the question of who gets bailed out when and for what is an inherently political one and should be thought of that way. It's obviously significant that the institutions that didn't get bailed out are not part of the, the same social network as the institutions that will now you know, compete to inherit their clients. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to remember that as much as we talk about the ruling class and the elite and the things that might unify them, there are constantly warring factions going on, even in sectors like finance that might feel more united than, say, you know, established liberals versus woke, you know, activists. And so the, that inner elite combat is always occurring in the background. And we got to keep it in mind when we're looking at world events. It's not just one big monolithic uh, kind of uh, oligarchy. Yeah, that's not how oligarchy works. But anyway, it's not one big <laughs> monolithic action handed down from on high. There are still winners and losers being manufactured even inside our elites. Yeah, well, and just because these people have more in common with each other than they have in you with you uh, doesn't mean they don't also fight and doesn't mean they all don't have their you know, their access to grind and their, their desires to eliminate competing networks. That's just, you know, how people work. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and get into the crypto. Then you've already pointed out uh, or kind of hinted that this is going to be a, uh, a significant part of this before we get into the technicals of who had interest in what type of crypto and kind of where that leads us might be useful to just explain kind of the basics. A lot of people just hear crypto and they think that's one thing but obviously that's a blanket term for things that are very different bitcoin versus something like a stable coin you know wh why does a stable coin exist how is it different from bitcoin if it's pegged to a dollar why would people hold it instead of a dollar maybe kind of explain a little bit of that yeah so there's uh, a bunch of issues at play here cryptocurrencies they broadly speaking they, they sit in two categories from a financial point of view there's cryptocurrencies that are not pegged to anything. So 
Bitcoin, Ethereum, these are examples of cryptocurrencies that are, they have an internal logic, they don't have an external reference point. And then there are cryptocurrencies that are pegged to some, that are, that are electronic tokens that entitle you to something real. So stable coins are an example of this kind of cryptocurrency. Uh, they're pegged to, in most cases, you know, government currencies of one kind or another. The largest stable coins have been pegged to the to U.S. dollars. Uh, there's kind of a troubled history of of stable coins. Several of them have failed spectacularly, and clients of stable coins have lost money. So you should really know what you're you're buying before you get kind of into it. But the reason for for stable coins, hypothetically, is that they allow the transmission of the underlying asset, in most cases, U.S. dollars, across international borders very quickly without the costs associated with traditional mechanisms for sending money. So if you've ever you know, tried to send money to a relative in like Vietnam or something, you'll know that it takes time. Uh, and usually there are significant fees associated with it. Whereas if you try to send, whereas if you owned a stable coin and sent it to your buddy in Vietnam, he would be able to receive it much more quickly. And because there'd be no intermediating, intermediating institution, um, there would be, you know, depending on how you did it, there might be small fees, but it'd be, be very inexpensive to do. So that's the reason why people use stable coins in place of, um, in place, well, that's one of the reasons why people use stable coins in, in place of actual US dollars. The other issue is the, the tax implications of buying and selling crypto, which are complicated and, and, and different in different jurisdictions. So what does this uh, interaction then with the banks, with what happened here, how does that impact crypto going forward? Well, there are, there were two major institutions in in the U.S. that tied crypt that would exchange cryptocurrency for U.S. dollars, and Signature Bank and SVB were those two institutions. Uh, if you were a crypto exchange, if you were um, if you were a crypto business, it's also overwhelmingly likely that your financing came through one of these two institutions. Um, so by eliminating these two institutions, uh, the, the, the ability to get financing to do business in crypto and the ability to take crypto and convert it into U.S. dollars directly through a financial institution uh, has been severely damaged. So one of the claims that you made in the thread that you wrote was that uh, this paves the way for central bank digital currency. Um, maybe you could explain what that is first for people who might not be aware, why it's significant and why you think this could prepare a path for that. Yeah, uh, so we're gonna be careful in the claims we make here, but it's worth noting that within 48 hours of the failure of SVB, the Federal Reserve, announced that its Fed now payment system was ready to launch in July. So immediately after competing networks to uh, pass US dollars in crypto were destroyed, the Federal Reserve announced that it, the Federal Reserve, the entity that selectively bailed out institutions and ensured that these institutions would fail, announced that it would have its, its competing cryptocurrency available shortly. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I'm not, I'm not claiming inside knowledge. I'm simply observing the course of events uh, in the, in this regard. So let's talk a little bit about what FedNow is, what it would compete with in the crypto world, um, and why FedNow is structured the way it is. So FedNow is an equivalent in some ways to a stable coin in that it's a token that can be exchanged uh, using the kind of protocols that are used to exchange crypto, but it's tied to, um, it's tied to, to the US dollar. So if you hold a FedNow token, you're, you've got a guarantee from the Federal Reserve that you can exchange it for US dollars. So it's not a true central bank digital currency in the way that you know, some people have discussed the concept. It's a token that is designed to be accessible to financial institutions that already have accounts at the Federal Reserve. So it's, it's like a stable coin. It's not targeted at regular people. It is targeted at the financial system. And it, if you read through their marketing, their material about why you should use FedNow as a financial institution, it's all focused on ease and speed, ease, speed, and low cost of settlement for transactions between the high-profile financial institutions. So it's a way of introducing digital currency into the financial system without disrupting the existing oligarchy that operates uh, the financial system for kind of the American world. So I think the question that comes to mind uh, for some people might be, well, I already know that like a large amount of my dollars are digital at this point. Like they're not physically printed out somewhere and no one is handing them to someone else. So if the bank is already just exchanging ones and zeros on an Excel spreadsheet somewhere anyway, why would you need to generate a separate system to create a token to stand in for dollars? Yeah. So at present, when financial institutions exchange U.S. dollars for whatever reason, they have a, a settlements process for, for this that goes back you know, more than 50 years. It's a very old process. It was designed for it. It was designed for, you know, a different world. And it costs, it costs quite a bit of money to settle financial, to settle US dollar trades. I mean, each trade doesn't cost a lot of money, but there's a lot of money spent in the area of, of settlement clearing. Um, and the protocol for sending crypto, uh, you know, is, significantly more sophisticated and efficient than the protocols for settlements for interbank settlements that exist today not only that it's it's virtually instant whereas the protocols for for interbank settlements today are tied to the business day so they don't go around the clock it can depending on the asset type it, it takes some time to settle so FedNow is the first step of this, but there are a number of centrally cleared assets uh, that operate through institutions that are not dissimilar to the Federal Reserve. So these are the things cleared by DTC, OCC, that if you were able to tokenize the settlement process, you could probably cut down on costs in settlement and clearing across the financial industry. So there's quite a bit of, of sort of cost of efficiency potentially to be gained by tokenizing the, the system. Uh, so, in order to, to explain in more detail, you, you really have to do a lecture on, on how financial settlements work. 
Sure. Yeah. So, so maybe just to, to, to kind of sum that up as much as possible. It, the, a lot of this is just avoiding pre-existing regulation. This allows you to use a different system where you don't have to comply with all these other settlement costs and operations and procedures. And so it's just their way of kind of sidestepping their own regulation in many of these areas. Yeah. It's just, it's going around process. So mm -hmm. when, when, uh, so the existing pro pro process uh, for sending cash between financial institutions operates through a protocol called SWIFT. That protocol goes back a very long time. People might be familiar with it because, you know, quite famously, the Russians were cut off of the SWIFT network as part right. of the sanction package. So uh, this FedNow is a selective replacement for SWIFT uh, among institutions. And, you know, the intent is that this that fed now will be a more efficient profile uh, process um, and uh, both from a cost point of view and from a, a speed of execution point of view. So a lot of people have been warning that fed now is kind of the end of everything. This is the, this is the complete centralization and control of all financial interactions through uh, you know, the banking system. This, this is, this is how the regime kind of locks down all interactions, all financial, uh, uh, you know, uh, transactions are, are now going to be recorded and controlled completely. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Uh, is, is F is uh, fed now a, a, a sea change or is it a step off and down inevitable path? What do you think? Well, so the first thing that I would say to this person is what do you think the world of finance looks like right now? Yeah. So, uh, every significant financial interaction, that occurs between any two Americans is monitored right now, especially if you're, you know, a target for whatever reason. So this idea that at present we have a free and open financial system with, uh, you know, if you've ever watched like uh, how the police target drug drug crime or, you know, how counterterrorism works you'll know that there are an enormous suite of tools in the financial system as it exists right now to target people who have been identified as doing things that are inappropriate with their money, you know, legitimately or otherwise. So that apparatus mostly already exists. It is true that uh, FedNow, um, especially if you look at what the Federal Reserve is encouraging its clients to do. It's encouraging the clients of FedNow to extend FedNow down to their clients. So the idea is to pass digital currency out through the, the same network by which the Fed currently introduces fiat currency to the system. So the idea here is that uh, FedNow will kind of flow out in the same way. Um, and it's true that if you create greater efficiencies in the process of financial transactions, it becomes easier. It's an it is an incremental step to making those transactions easier to track. It's an incremental step towards making the Federal Reserve involved in all of these transactions, whereas many there are many cash transactions in which the Federal Reserve is now kind of only very indirect indirectly involved. So there's there's definitely an incremental step there, but FedNow is not a central bank digital currency in the way that people kind of 
sci-fi imagine it where uh because in order to do that you would sweep away in order to do like a a central bank digital currency in the way that people imagine you would sweep away the existing oligarchy that kind of operates the financial system that makes sense yeah so I think we've covered most of this, but I want to ask you one more question uh, that will now get you in trouble with all the crypto people. So I hope you're you're prepared because uh, someone is always angry in the comments after this. But uh, but I'm always interested because I'm not a financial guy uh, that this is not my wheelhouse. Uh, I get wildly different opinions from people who are very knowledgeable on this. And so I'm always interested <laughs> to pick to pick people's brains on this sure. issue. But with crypto. Yeah. Um some people are like bitcoin is the salvation it's what allows people to be freed from the state it's the uh, you know it's the answer that unlocks you know kind of uh, the exit uh, aspect of political action um and you're no longer beholden to this thing other people tell me that's dumb the state is the only reason that like money holds value uh, and they, they're always going to be able to force you to use whatever medium of exchange is kind of uh, required under their system. And so Bitcoin is always meaningless because it has no state force to back it up uh, and can be stamped out by whatever uh, government decides that it's not allowing exchange in that medium. Uh, it's not a simple question, but where do you land on this? Do you think that this is a solution that a lot of people think it is? Or do you think that those people are not understanding the state aspect of, of currency? Uh, I think this is, my views on this are kind of nuanced. Um, so the first thing to remember here is that crypto is fundamentally a technology first and a, and a, a, a currency second. So you know, as as people who've discussed central bank digital currencies, you know, will make you well aware. You can certainly have, a, you can certainly make use of the technology behind cryptocurrency in order to have a new set of currencies that are centralized and backed fundamentally by the power of the state. Um, so that's kind of point number one. It's a technology. It, crypto is a technology. It's not a currency. Now, there are currencies that are presently independent that use crypto that use the crypto technology there's bitcoin there's ethereum and there's a, a number of other smaller ones we'll deal with bitcoin as an example first and then we can kind of generalize from there hmm. so bitcoin is attempting to be an independent currency backed by the confidence that exists in bitcoin um so there's no, you can't exchange Bitcoin for gold or for goods and services unless other people believe that Bitcoin is valuable. It's decentralized, so there's no state actor behind it. And the real question of how to value Bitcoin is a question of supply and demand and a question of confidence. So Bitcoin will succeed to the extent that there are people who are, you know, happy to accept Bitcoin. Um, Will there be people who are happy to accept Bitcoin? Well, in order to answer that question, it's worth reviewing the history of non-state non fiat currencies. And it turns out there's a very long and broad history of that. Basically, up until the 20th century, everybody had non-state-backed currencies. So if you look at even the United States in the 19th century, banks were issuing banknotes rather than US dollars. And 
those banknotes were sometimes exchangeable for gold. Sometimes they they were just letters of credit. It, it's kind of it was a very diverse set of practices in banking at the time, and the U.S. government culminating in FDR confiscating everybody's gold was able to put the boot on that uh, very rapidly, uh, to the point where the FDR regime unilaterally at e abrogated every contract in the United States because virtually every contract in the United States said that you could make payment either in U S dollars or in equivalent gold. Um, so not only did he seize the gold from the banks, not only did he make it illegal to privately hold gold, not only, but he also abrogated all of these provisions and contracts that allowed you to transact in gold. So there's a, you know, a very recent example of a, of the US government making an alternate currency illegal when it suited it to do so and backing that uh, backing that up with an enormous show of force. So if you're a Bitcoin advocate and you're totally convinced that no state actor can ban Bitcoin, well, I don't I, I, I think that history shows that, uh, states have been pretty successful at stamping out alternate currencies, though not completely successful. So even in FDR's America, there were still transactions going on in gold. There were still people accepting it. There were still people transacting in foreign currencies, even though that the, even though they're not supposed to. Uh, so the amount of force required to enforce a ban is quite high, and it's also worth saying that you know the FDR regime held a lot more power than most modern governments do. Mm. So. Would a modern government be able to stamp out Bitcoin? Uh, I don't know. Uh, the other real advantage Bitcoin has is it crosses a lot of international borders. So, and not just the kind of formal international borders that exist between American dominated uh, countries, but it crosses like real international borders into places like China and Russia. So it would be quite difficult in the present moment to stamp out Bitcoin completely. Um, however, it, I think it's yet to be determined what the impact of an effort to ban Bitcoin by either the by the US government would be in terms of like how much value you could destroy. So a bit of a long winded answer to what is, I think, a very complicated question um, and a question that I don't think, you know, I, I think if you look at the history of governments trying to stamp out alternate currencies, it's kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes they're able to, sometimes not. You know, North Korea has a, a thriving black market in the most totalitarian state in the world, and they either can't or, or haven't stamped it out. So, yeah, no, I think that's good, though. I think, uh, like I said, no, normally the the answers to that question are just uh, people yelling uh, how dumb it is for anyone to hold the other, <laughs> the other opinion. Uh, so it's good to have somebody to kind of break down the nuance, though I'm sure you've just made everyone angry, but in the best way possible. Uh, wow. So I think that's that's good. I, I mean, at the, the, the bottom of it, it's a question of how much pa power you think the U.S. government has to effectuate a ban if they attempt it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, there are very mixed opinions about how successful the total state, if I might borrow a phrase, a phrase um, you know, w is. 
Nope, absolutely. All right, well, we're going to move to the questions of the people here in a second. But before we do, uh, I know like uh, you're you're usually a guest on Radical Liberation's channel, but I know you also have other projects that you're working on. Could you share with people what you're working on and where they can find your work? Yeah, I've got a, a bunch of things going on. Um, I've got a Substack that I, I work on with a, a number of other Canadians called the Red Ensign uh, that you can find. I'm, I'm a member of the Beowulf Foundation, which is responsible for the Skildings event that I believe you're speaking at shortly. Uh, so if you go and if you go and check out my Twitter, you can find your way through to that. Um, but certainly, it, it, uh, the upcoming conference in Tennessee is well worth your time. Um, and uh, you can follow my Twitter. You can follow my work either on Bradlib's channel or on uh, or on Lambda Bible Studies. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing a lot of uh, a lot of people in our sphere at that you know in real life over at the Skildings events. So that's going to be exciting. I'm glad a lot of people are going to be attending there. All right, let's check out some of our questions. Uh, Arthur T for ten dollars. Uh, question: Does the ongoing de-dollarization have an effect on the on increasing bank failures? So uh, let's talk. So what he's talking about by de-dollarization is he's looking at the trend uh, of foreign governments uh, toward using U.S. dollars less frequently as their currency of reserve or as their currency of exchange for commodities. Um, to contextualize that that trend. Uh, I, we did a recent Econ Minis episode on Radlib's channel about this, where you can talk about it for an hour. But broadly speaking, this is a trend that is ongoing, but it's er in early stages. I don't believe that the bank failures that you see in the United States are substantially connected to it at this point. Uh, the trend towards de-dollarization will damage the U.S. government if it continues, but we're we're very early days yet makes sense all right and then we have uh atraxia here for two dollars thank you very much uh just get chipped get in the pod and eat the bugs yeah <laughs> uh, that is the plan you will own nothing and you will be happy let's see all right i think we got everybody there all right guys well thanks for coming by of course make sure you check out all of black horses content and uh, if this is your first time coming uh, on the channel, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe. If you want to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you're subscribing to the Oren McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. And when you do, if you could leave that rating or review, it really helps other people find the show. Of course, you can check out everything on uh, Rumble and Odyssey. You can follow me on Twitter and Gab. And of course, all of this goes up on Blaze TV. In fact, I believe my new column should be out on the Blaze here shortly. So make sure that you're checking that as well. Thanks for coming by, guys. And as always, I will talk to you next time.